0: Well, Once again, good morning Meadowland. It is good to be together with you. I just gotta say, I, I love this place. Uh, just to see how many people came out who aren't on the volunteer schedule and still braved this weather to come out just to be here. Uh, it's, just, it's, just a, it's a warming thought and just so appreciative of those who have joined here together. And uh, I think Doug and Jerry won the award for the furthest distance traveled. Um, and, and so basically uh, the, your prize is you have the free pick of whoever's house you want to come to afterwards to watch the Super Bowl. Uh, we're not going to send you back out in that until uh, you're good and ready, so uh, you can come wherever. Uh, if we do get snowed in, we can always make the trek over to my house to watch the game and uh, you can you know, find more information from me or from my wife Sarah, she's the beautiful one who's now stewing because I just invited the whole church over for uh, the Super Bowl. Well, you know, As I was growing up, uh, I thought I'd be a, a lot of things and uh, a pastor is not one of them it was never on my radar. It was never something I, I thought about, hey, you know, I, I can't wait to be a pastor one day. Um, I'll, I'll come here to church and, and be doing stuff throughout the week and in the evening sometimes I'll I have my girls with me and uh, both of them just love the stage and I, I think for my, my five-year-old, it's mostly because she just loves the stage, uh, but my, my two-year-old kind of gets up and like almost pretends to preach. And you, I know you can make the, the comment, it's just, you know, mimicking what dad does, but you, you just see the, this this love they have for it. I was never that way. I mean, I, Church was this thing I went to to keep my mom happy and uh, and that's kind of what it was up until my high school and college years where I, where I really fell in love with the Bride of Christ, with the church and, and made it something that I wanted to come to and wanted to be a part of because uh, as a follower of Christ that, that, that was just what we're, we're called to do but it was a joy and a privilege to be able to do. So I just I never thought about it. There's actually a, a pastor in my life who suggested, Steve, you ever thought about being a pastor? That was when I was in eighth grade and it was comical to me. It just wasn't on my radar. I I never thought that I would surrender my plans to God's plans. I I had plans of becoming a biomedical engineer, um, it was a combination of, of the world of, of uh, medicine with the world of engineering I, I always thought okay I'd love to be a doctor and just kind of I was fascinated by some of the things you can do as a doctor it still fascinates me how there's parts of our bodies that we can replace with man-made mechanized things and I know there's still a far cry from uh, what God has created but just the fact that we can do some of those things and, and join things together and move things around to, to prolong uh, life and, and increase health it just fascinates me. And so to be able to get into that field of biomedical engineering, in in, uh, high school you had to write a paper, and you had to write your paper on here's the job I want to be in. Uh, The class that I was in, uh, I always kind of fell into that class where I had that one teacher who said, well here's what everyone else in the school is doing, but we're going to try something different. And so I I never got any of those those normal experiences, always something different. And so we had to compare and contrast two different jobs, and so that's how I kind of landed on this merger of biomedical engineering. I, I just thought I would surrender that plan. And yet, uh, there came a point in my life where I surrendered my plan to Jesus. And uh, one of the pivotal times was right around college, where right before I went to college, uh, you know, I had plans to go to one school and to get a, a physics degree, an engineering degree, and then kind of move on from there into the, 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 the medicine world. Um, and just God just did some stuff in my life. And next thing I know, I'm going to Trinity uh, with a Christian ministries, you know, focus and and focusing on on youth ministry. Just my my life had changed as I surrendered my life to Jesus. And now daily, I, I strive to surrender my will. My desires and my actions to Jesus, and it's been a road. And if you've been walking with Jesus for any length of time, I'm sure you have those stories and you have those experiences as well, where each day you find maybe a different way or a new way in which you've not yet surrendered a will or a desire or an action to God. And we have to, we come to that question, that that moment, where we have to say, Will I surrender this to Jesus? Will I submit to His will, to His desires? For my life, have you ever thought something along these lines? I'll, I'll surrender to Jesus when pigs fly. I'll surrender to Jesus when pigs fly. It's just no, nope, it's not going to happen. And, and maybe it's maybe you know someone where it's in their entire lifestyle. They just have no interest in God and Jesus, and they say, you know what? Pigs will fly before I, I uh, become a Christian. Before I surrender. Maybe many of us here. Who already are Christians? Uh, maybe there's an area, just one little part of your life, that you said, "You know what? No, that that's mine. I'm keeping that. I've always been this way, God. I, I know it's you know it's you, you'd call me to other things, but you know I'm going to surrender to you in that area of my life when pigs fly." And maybe we don't say those words, maybe we don't vocalize it that harshly, but maybe by our actions, we're living a life indicative of something like that where there's some aspect of our life that we've withheld from God, that we said, I just, I'm just i unwilling to surrender that part of my life. So I believe that there's two ways in which we need to surrender to Jesus. The first is to surrender to Jesus as our Savior, because He is our Savior, we need to surrender to Him. We need to acknowledge our condition before God, that there is sin in our life, there's something that separates us from God, and we are in need of a Savior. And our response is one of, of repentance. Our response is one to say, yes, I'm a sinner before God, and, and the blood of Jesus is sufficient uh, to cover o- over those scenes so that I'm seen as perfect, as perfected in the eyes of God. And so we need to take that step and say, I surrender my life to you, Jesus. And I, and I receive your free gift of grace through faith. I, I, I receive the forgiveness of of sin because of what you've done on the cross, Jesus. We surrender our lives to Jesus as Savior. But I think there's also an area where we need to surrender to Jesus as Lord. This really was my story as well growing up where um, I grew up understanding this whole uh, concept that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but I never let it go beyond that. I never let it go to a place where it would impact and affect my day-to-day life. I never said, Jesus, you are my Lord. I will surrender my will, my plan to you. And as I grew in my faith, I came to that point. But when we surrender to Jesus as Lord, we acknowledge that all of our actions, interests, and desires may not be God-honoring. And there may be a place and a need for life change to take place. We need to seek Jesus to see in what areas and what that should look like. So I think one of the reasons that uh, this is such a challenge for us is that to surrender is a challenging thing. It's not something that we can do easily. It's not something that we do willingly all the time. Uh, you know, countless wars have been waged. Countless wars have been drawn out and extended simply because no one from you know, neither side was willing to come to a place of surrender. This, the you know, war after war with their stories where uh, both sides had been willing to assume significant loss before they got to a place of surrender. But eventually they got to a point where the loss was too great. and They had to say, you know what, we need to put an end to this nonsense and we need to surrender. We continue to live a life in our own ways unwilling to concede to the will of others uh, because maybe we don't trust them. Maybe we don't know who they are or there's this, you know, We want to have that control in our life if someone just came up to you off the street and said hey here's how you should live your life i'm guessing we're probably not going to surrender to that because we don't know who they are do they have our best interests in mind do they even know what they're talking about but sometimes that there's trusted brothers and sisters in christ and, and friends and family members who know us who know our challenges who know our weaknesses and desire to see us grow in our faith and sometimes we have a hard time even surrendering uh to some of the things that they would have uh, for us in our life. I'm not saying we need to surrender to them, but when they're pointing us towards Christ, we need to surrender in those ways. Surrender requires either a great trust in the person we're surrendering to, or great desperation or loss. See, either the the level of trust and belief uh, in others empowers our surrender, or the believed cost of not surrendering becomes too great. We finally come to this place where we surrender. Let me give you some examples of what I mean by that. First one, say you get pulled over. Most would say, when you see those lights in your background, in your rearview mirror, most people would say, it's not worth the cost of continuing on the path I'm going. And so we surrender our will to the cops. Okay, he wants me to stop, I'll stop. It's not worth trying to outrun him. Because even if I do, he's already got my plates and track down where I live and, and just mail me the ticket and a few extra ones on top of that. We would say you know, it's not worth going further. It's not worth the cost. Or maybe you just simply say, if you see you know, those lights in, in your rearview mirror, hey, this cop probably has the community's best interest in mind and my best interest, and so he just wants to slow me down and give me a ticket or a warning or whatever it is. And so one way or the other, either we believe that they have our best interest and they have the knowledge and the heart to be able to say, okay, I need to intervene here. Or we just say it's not worth it. And either way, it moves us to a place of surrendering to the will of that officer. We do this in our relationships as well. There comes a point in our relationship where we have to count the cost of continuing uh, an argument or or defiance uh, to another. There's a point where it becomes too great, where where the relational strain of holding our ground, uh, of having to be right in a certain situation becomes so great that we just say, you know what? I surrender. We'll go your way. And yes, in some circumstances there, there is a clear right and wrong. Uh, but in other examples it might just be preference. Honey, where do you want to have dinner tonight? I want to go out. You want to go. You want to stay home. Which one's right? Every man in the house should now should be saying wherever your wife wants to go, that's what, what's right. But uh, I haven't always learned that lesson though either. So, um, you know, but. There comes a point where the relational loss isn't worth it anymore, and so we'll surrender to someone else's desire, someone else's will. Or the level of trust that we have, uh, that we believe they have our best interests in mind, is so great that we can surrender to their will. If my wife says, hey, Steve, you know what, we're going to stay in tonight, I'm going to make a home-cooked meal, I'm sold, I'm done. And that comes from a guy who loves to eat out. Well, one of my favorite kind of hobbies has become going to new places in town and then critiquing quietly in my mind how bad their burger is. Um, Most of I haven't found really good ones in the area. And I was talking about this yesterday. You, you find a place that probably has a good burger, but you go there for something else, and you never taste their burger. Anyway, back on something that matters. If my wife says, hey, Steve, we're, we're staying home tonight for dinner, I trust her. Uh, I, I have enough belief in, in her heart towards me and her knowledge that she's going to prepare an amazing meal. And so I surrender my will, even if I was all excited to go out to this new restaurant or whatever and, and complain about their burger, I'm going to say, you know what, yeah, let's stay home. Let's stay home, and I surrender my will to hers. I think we do this with, with our beliefs about God, even. That there comes a, a point in our lives, and many of us, I think, have already have gone through this point where the cost of living a life apart from God becomes so great that we, we begin to see, okay, no, I think there's, there's value in, in surrendering my will to God's. In receiving this gift of grace and surrendering my life to Jesus. It begins this, we begin to ask questions and, and search for answers. We examine our own hearts and we, we come to this place of, of do, I, do I trust Jesus? Do I trust what, what God has to say? Do I believe that He has my best interest at heart? See, everything really comes back to this question of, of, of who do you say Jesus is? If you believe he's God, if you believe he's, he's trustworthy, if you believe he has our best interests in mind and he wants good things for us, if you believe that he's God, for both reasons of surrender, that should move us to a place to say, I surrender to Jesus. Some of us, uh, you know, whether in this room or people in our lives, are still trying to answer that question just outright. Do, am I willing to surrender my life to Jesus? But I think many of us have also answered that question to say, yes, I surrender my life to Jesus but we still struggle with moments of disbelief. We still struggle with elements of our faith. We're like, okay, yes, Jesus, I believe you are God. I believe you're my Savior and my Lord, and I surrender my life to you, but I'm not sure what to do with this piece over here. I have a really hard time believing this. Or I struggle with that. Is that you? I mean, could you think of some things maybe where you struggle with moments of disbelief? If that's you this morning, I want you to hear this. I want you to know that that is okay. My prayer for us this morning is a couple things. One, that we would know God more. That we would have a clear picture of who Jesus is as we walk out of this place into apocalypse, and just um, come, you know, that we'd come to know who he is and what he's like. And that in knowing who Jesus is, is, uh, is and what he's like, I also pray that we would grow in our areas of unbelief towards Jesus' work in our life. That any area of our life where we have unbelief, that we'd be able to see who Jesus is. And maybe we could say, I can't fully understand this, but because of of who you are, Jesus, uh, uh, okay, I'll follow you. I'll believe what you say to be true. And also that we would move to a place where our faith would be one that has the power to move mountains. Because there are impossible things that that happen, uh, that, that, that are in our life that we would like to see happen, but we feel like they're impossible. But we'll see how faith in Jesus Has the power to move mountains, to do the impossible. So turn your Bibles, if you got them, to Matthew chapter 17. We're going to be in verse 14 through 20. Matthew 17, verse 14 through 20. Uh, as you're opening there, let me give you some context here uh, of what's going on. Um, so what has just happened, basically, is Jesus was with his disciples, and he pulls aside uh, three, Peter, James, and John, and goes up to the, the Mount of Transfiguration, is what it becomes called, because of what happens there. Uh, basically, he goes up there, and he's transfigured, which basically means uh, that there comes a point where he basically is engulfed in light, and, and the disciples look over, and they see that he's actually there with two other people who they identify, and the text identifies as, as Elijah and Moses. Uh, the reason they're important is in the jewish uh, uh, culture in their uh, heritage those would have been authorities uh, in life moses had given the law elijah was a prophet uh, and so they would see them a- a- as religious authorities and here they are in conversation with jesus and we see jesus Jesus's lordship over them and we also see we hear in the story we see that there's uh, the voice of god says listen to him this is my son and so these disciples get to witness this, and uh, later they, they share that with the other disciples, but not right away when they first come down, because Jesus asked them not to. But, so basically all this is happening. Jesus is up on, on this mountain with these three disciples, and, and the transfiguration happens. And he comes down the mountain, and that takes us to our text here. What the other disciples have been doing, I, I, we kind of look into the text to see what's happening, is that they've been uh, uh, casting out demons. And we, we actually if we go earlier, Matthew 10 we see that uh, they've been given and granted the authority to be able to cast out demons. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So God, Jesus already empowered his disciples to be able to cast out demons uh, by his power, by the power of Jesus, and do just this. And so uh, you can see this is another time in their uh, life where they're, they're doing that, um, or sort of, sort of, as we'll see here in a moment. So Matthew seventeen fourteen through 18, Jesus is coming down from the mountain with the other three, and they're showing up to the other nine disciples. And there's a crowd gathering. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, him being Jesus, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water, and I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. So this man has a son who's got demon possession. And we see it plays itself out that that the demon causes the boy to throw himself uh, into water, to throw himself into the fire uh, to harm him. And it causes seizures as well. And so he, he brings his son to these disciples and says, Hey, can, you know, you're Jesus' disciples. Can you cast out this demon? Can you heal my son? And they say, Sure. And, and so they, 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 they start trying to do that, and they're unable. And so then Jesus comes down. Well, I'm going to go to the source. And he goes to the Jesus, and Jesus says, Alright, bring the boy over. He rebukes the demon, the demon comes out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. So we see where the power lies. We see that Jesus has power, has authority over the spiritual realm. We see another account of the same story in Mark chapter 9. It gives a little more insight, a little more, uh, unpacks the story a bit more here. So we jump to uh, Mark 9 here for a moment, verse 21. And Jesus asked his father, the father of the boy, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And so he brings his son to Jesus, not even sure we see in the text here, knowing what Jesus can do, just knowing that Jesus has power. And he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help my son. And Jesus almost has one of those moments like, you don't fully realize who I am yet, do you? You don't really know who you talk If I can? Let me show you something. You'd be amazed by this. And he heals his son. But when I look at the, the response of the father before his son is healed, it's just been uh, just weighing on my heart. I believe. Help my unbelief. See, I, I think many of us are, are like this father, where we stand before Jesus and we are in need. We're wondering, can you do anything about our situation? Can you do anything for our cause, Jesus? Can you heal my marriage that's broken? Can you heal my relationship with my coworkers, with my my strange family members, with, with uh, my neighbors? We've been feuding for years. Can can you heal that relationship with that person who, who we've broken ties because of some some silly argument we can't even recall anymore? Is there anything you can do, Jesus? Just if you have compassion on me and, and help me in this. Is there anything you can do to help me overcome my addiction? Whether it be a substance or or, or the things that I allow to to infiltrate my thought life or the things that I'm looking at online. Can you you help me overcome my pride, my my greed, my sense of entitlement, my obsession with with gossip? We have these different things in our life that plague us. Is there anything you can do, God? Can you have compassion on me? Can you heal me physically? Can you heal me mentally? Can you heal me emotionally? I feel broken. And we're standing before God in need of Jesus, saying, is there anything that you can do? We get to this place, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus, I believe you are God's son. Help me believe that you can change my life. We see, though, that the Father wasn't the only one who struggled with this concept of belief. We keep on reading, uh, in the text here says this, going back to verse 19 of Matthew 17. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So the disciples have a big question on their mind. We've cast out demons before. Why why, why couldn't we cast out this one? And they go go to Jesus privately and ask him this question. We're going to take a a little tangent here real quick. Because I wonder how many of us, myself included, could truly benefit from a practice like this. Or when we have big questions that, that are plaguing our mind, when there's things that we can't, just, you know, we can't get past, just every moment that we just find ourselves just drifting off and just thinking about whatever, man, this is what comes to mind, this question, oh, I don't get this, I, I need this answered. How many of us go first and foremost to Jesus? To get quietly in this private time with Jesus say, hey, Jesus, help me figure this out. Sometimes I think we don't even seek an answer, even though the question may plague us. We, we just let the days fly by, and we wonder, I've done that before. You know, I really wish I knew what God said about this more. I should look into that. Oh, look, there's something to do over here. There's something do. I keep thinking about that. Yeah, I've been thinking about this for a long time. I haven't really developed that thought anymore, because I haven't gone to Jesus on it. I just thought about the question. So sometimes I, don't, I think even though it plagues us, we don't even seek an answer. I think sometimes we're quick to jump to Google it. And there's nothing wrong with some of these I'm going to throw out there. It's just the order in which we do them. I saw a picture online of a bunch of people at a card catalog, if you remember what those are, and it said, This is an ancient version of Googling. That's what we used to do back in the days. You have to look up these little cards, I'd lead you to a book, and the book would have an answer. Surprise, surprise. Uh, you know, it's a verb these days. Just Google it. I got countless stories of, of, of my kids, of other people's kids, of, of youth these days that have a question, and, and you know, if there's the slightest bit of, a, I'm not sure. Their first response is, "Well, just Google it." Uh, one time, I, one of my girls said, "Just ask your phone." Okay. <laughs> I don't know if she meant Google it or call mom, but ask the phone. Sometimes that, that's our first step is going straight to googling it. I'm not getting. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with learning more information, but let's let that first step be one of going privately to Jesus. I think sometimes we seek counsel, but sometimes I think we forget to see if it's wise. Are we going to people who could actually give us insight into whatever it is that's plaguing our mind, whatever our question is about God? Are we going to someone who can actually provide wisdom and insight into that? Or are we sharing the company of fools? Are we seeking wisdom from the wise, or from one who is more lost than we are, Proverbs fourteen seven will give us some insight on that. Leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet words of knowledge. If you're looking to be introduced to knowledge, a fool is not the place to go. They don't know each other. But in the same sense, we also need to remember that you you only need to be one step ahead of someone to lead them. And so I'm not saying we need to find someone who, who's a master scholar. Is there someone who's maybe one step along in their fa- journey of faith that you can seek out? So again, Googling something, wise counsel, not bad things. But let us first go privately to Jesus and, and hear from him through times of prayer and, and engulfing ourselves in God's word. Romans 10:17 tells us that so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. And so we're having a crisis of faith, that there's a disbelief that we're struggling with, one of the things we can do is go first to Jesus and hear him through his word. And as we do that, it'll, it'll grow our faith. And then we can go to those other sources. Let's get back to the question. So, so why couldn't the disciples cast out this demon? Well, Jesus says it's because of their little faith. If you don't lose hope when you hear that, uh, So This is the disciples. They've seen some stuff. They've been with Jesus. They've seen him do amazing things. They couldn't do this because they didn't have faith? There was little faith? It was too small? There's a tension that exists there. They must have believed in Jesus. We see how the story plays out. We see that they abandoned so much to go and learn from him and follow after him. So there's definitely a sense that they believed, and yet they had little faith. I think the Father lived in this tension, too. We see that in his phrase to Jesus. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. Well, hang on, dude, you just said you believe. What do you mean, help your unbelief? How can those two coexist? And See, this is the way I used to think. I used to think that faith and disbelief were two sides of a light switch. You had faith, okay, that means you believe, and the light was on, and the bulb was shining bright. Well, if you had disbelief, well, turn the bulb off. Now, obviously, to a certain point, if you say, you know what, I don't believe God exists, I mean, you've taken the bulb out of the socket and set it aside. That's a whole other conversation. But can you have a place where you say, my faith is in Jesus, but I still have areas where I struggle with disbelief. Can those coexist? Or if I have disbelief, does that mean I don't really have faith at all? Well, no, because a confession of unbelief does not, it is not a contradiction to an affirmation of faith. A confession of unbelief does not contradict an affirmation of faith. An area of disbelief doesn't turn off or negate one's belief. If you turn off a light bulb, take the power away from it, it's still a light bulb. And that's why I'd encourage you to think about it we place our faith in Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe you're my Lord and Savior, we we, we become a light to to shine his glory into this world. And the power for that light is Jesus. And if we have areas of disbelief where we're struggling, sometimes maybe we're not connected into that power and we're not shining as bright, or maybe we're not shining at all, but we're still a light bulb. It doesn't change that reality. See, some of us have been wrestling with things like this for a while. Maybe you've rejected Jesus all out because there's parts of the Bible that you struggle with. You say, I, I can't believe these, these fine points of the Bible, so I, I reject it all. I, I, I just can't uh, uh, you know, justify some of the things that I've seen happen in religion. Man's uh, communal outworking of faith. And I, just, you know, I can't believe some of those things. I can't, you know, how would God even allow those to happen? So I, I reject everything. Some people reject everything because of those moments of, of disbelief belief some of us have received jesus but carry areas of guilt and shame because of of disbelief maybe as you read through the creation account you say okay well i see this is what scripture says how how the earth was made but some scientists say this and other scientists say you know i I don't know what to believe i don't know what to make sense of all that i mean is that okay What's interesting is is every time I've, I've reserved time to kind of go back into that debate of creation versus evolution, um, I kind of go back and forth, to be honest. I've had times where I say, okay, I can see this. I'm, I'm more lean that way. And then even when you get within the, the mindset of, of creation, you say, okay, well, is it a young earth or is it an older? Are we 6,000 years old? Are we you know, with appearance of age? Or are we billions and billions of years old? And you look at different sciences that point different directions. And at the end of the day, what the conclusion I've always come to is is that there's still so much more to figure out. I, I don't know if I could, you know, here's what I think maybe might be the way that it was done. But ultimately, I believe that Jesus was the author of it all. I he was behind it all whatever means he chose to use and you can see you go back to genesis chapter one some would say that it was a literal day you know 24 hours between each thing others would say well the the hebrew word there that we translate as day means a significant period of time a season and so it could it could be you know thousands and thousands of millions of of years or you know so do we really know and but here's the thing and I guarantee these there's people who have probably dug into this a whole lot more than I have. And they'd say, Steve, you know, it's, it's pretty simple. You know, It's this or that. You've got to look at this or that. But it's okay to have those, those struggles of disbelief as long as we come back to this place of Jesus. As long as we come back to the, the, the power source of, of, that's found in him, the faith that we have in him. So I can say, how was the earth made? It was done through Jesus. How did he do it? I think maybe this way. As I look through scripture, I see it revealed I would have, you know this is this is where I would lean. But ultimately you push come to shove. I'm sticking with Jesus. It's okay. Faith in Jesus doesn't eliminate, is not eliminated by struggling with an area of disbelief. Think of it this way. Imagine a team of horses hooked up to a weight, to a sled with a weight on it. They have the power and the ability to pull that weight. Disbelief is like starting to hook up horses that are pulling the other direction. You still are hooked up. You're still able to move that forward, unless you, know, you get so much disbelief that it's, it's you know you're at a standstill. But there's still faith. Jesus Jesus offers us encouragement and instruction uh, to to this whole dialogue we're having here. It's uh, Matthew 17, verse 20 starting a little bit in the verse here, for truly I say to you, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now again, we need to you know, put this in context. We look back the past couple of weeks we've been talking about, this isn't one of those, okay, you can be a superhero, you can you know, make things appear out of, out of thin air. But see, as you live your life, as you walk with God, that there's nothing that will be impossible. All you need is faith like a grain of mustard seed. See, mustard seed was a common imagery in Jewish culture. Okay, It wasn't the smallest seed, but it was seen as one of the smallest. So we talk about mustard seed, it's so small. Okay? Well, that's pretty much one of the smallest seeds there, there is. But it would grow into this massive tree. So and Jesus also, he's using a figure of speech here when he says, faith as small as this mustard seed, this tiny little bit of faith can move this massive mountain. He's finding two comparisons, things that are in their everyday life, that they're familiar with this mustard seed. He's just come down off a mountain. It's probably still there in the background. So he's not literally calling for the disciples to see, hey, can you move the landscape around? Can you bring a mountain to Illinois so, you know, kind of beef up Wilmot a little bit? Make like a little longer of a black, black diamond run. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the smallest of faith can accomplish the largest of things. Why? Because it's not the amount of our faith that defines its power, but who it's in. It's not the amount of our faith that defines its power, but who it's in. The power comes from the object of our faith, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Did the disciples begin to believe that they were the ones that had the power? As I see this, this text, I kind of begin to wonder that. Maybe they've been able to heal enough people that they're fooling themselves. saying, Okay, well, I, I can do this. Well, it's still Jesus working through you. Maybe when they lost sight of that. They no longer had that ability because they were trying to do it on their own power. They lost sight of the fact that it's the power of Jesus in them. It's not their own power. Imagine it like a light bulb shining bright, saying, hey, look how bright I am, and then trying to disconnect itself from the power source and go be bright somewhere else. The second it, it begins to think it's that source of light, it's already forgotten who it is. But when it stays connected to the power source, it can be as bright as it desires to be. If planted, a mustard seed will grow into a huge tree. A bigger mustard seed will produce the same tree. The potential of the tree within that seed is the same. So again, it's not the size or the amount of our faith that defines its power. And a different kind of seed will produce a different kind of tree. So it leads us to a question of what kind of seed is your faith? Is your faith in Jesus or, or do you rely on something else? If you think of the mustard seed as an example of okay, a faith in Jesus, it only needs to be this small little bit. Is that... Our faith, is our faith in something else? Is our faith in religion? Is our faith in doing good works? Is our faith in some sort of self-proclaimed self-righteousness? Where just little old me just says, "Eh, I think I have enough understanding of the universe and I'm all good. What kind of seed is our faith? Is it one that whether big or small trusts in Jesus or trusts in these other things? It's not the amount of our faith that defines its power, but who it's in. Times of disbelief should draw us closer to, not farther from Jesus. Times of disbelief should draw us closer to, not farther from Jesus. We should uh, investigate, we should look into it to see, okay, well, what is this disbelief about? See, faith, according to Hebrews 11, is defined uh, as this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The faith, now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It, it's a, it's a, a conviction of things unseen, a belief in that which we can't touch. Like a lot of times that draws us further from Jesus. We say, oh, I, I, just, you know, I can't see, I can't talk to these people that, that have this testimony about Jesus. All I can do is, is read about them. There's so many things like, I can't touch or see in front of me, and so we withdraw. Instead, I think in those moments of disbelief where we're struggling with something, we need to lean in. What struggles have kept you from proclaiming faith in Jesus? What what struggles have hindered your, your journey, your walk with Him? Because in the midst of that disbelief, you've withdrawn from Jesus instead of leaning in and getting closer to him. Say, help me to see, help me to be assured of, of what I hope for, and to be convicted of what I cannot see. And then finally, we walk in faith. We'll see God do the impossible. See, apart from Jesus, we don't have the power to cast out demons. Apart from Jesus, the, the disciples didn't have the power to cast out demons. I think in a very similar way, that there's parts of our lives that... that are not in line with God. And I would argue that apart from God, we can't remove those parts of our life. What is currently in your life that is not of God? Are you tired of trying to cast it out on your own power? Are you standing like the disciples saying, I don't get it. How come come I can't get rid of this part of my life I'm trying to overcome? Maybe it's because of our little faith. But let us take just the faith of a mustard seed, the size of a mustard seed, acknowledge the power of Jesus and look to Him and we will see the impossible done. We will see life change done. Let me leave you with this encouragement from Philippians 4.19. Last week we looked at uh, Philippians four. Or Paul talks about how I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it gets to this point, I think this is a good thing to remember as we're talking about seeing the impossible done, as we're talking about seeing life change done through faith in Jesus, as we uh, struggle through our disbelief and say, okay, well, I still believe that Jesus is God, but here's some things that I'm struggling through. We can say, okay, I can lean into him and, and grow through that. And As I do that, and as I hear his word, and as I understand more of who Jesus is, th- then I can see, that, okay, I can trust in him, I can surrender my life to him, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, you are an awesome God, and we just love you. We thank you for this morning that we have to come together. Father, as we um, continue on our, our time together through uh, an offering and through a few more songs, Father, we do approach the end. We pray that you would Uh, be with us, Father, as we head out from this place, that you would provide safe travels to everyone uh, who's heading home, everyone who's heading here for the 11 o'clock service, um, and that you would just be with us on the road. But but Father, we also pray that um, as there's parts of our lives that we struggle with, there's things where we maybe have areas of of disbelief where we think, will this ever change? Can you ever work in in our lives? Can we ever see a change in, in these areas of our lives? Father, help us to Place our faith in your power and who Jesus is and not in ourselves. And to step forward trusting in you over ourselves. Supply all that we need, Father. Make it through these days. Pray us all in your name. Amen.